This is Open Work, a look inside the watch industry, a podcast from Collective Horology. I'm Gabe Riley, co-founder of Collective. And I'm Asher Rapkin, co-founder of Collective. So today on the podcast, we're going inside watch journalism. And we want to understand how and why watch journalists cover what they do. In particular, how do they make decisions about which watches, which topics they're going to cover and what they don't? How do they balance editorial freedom with brand relationships, advertising, and even retail sales? And what would an independent watch media look like? And I'm happy to say today we have the perfect guest to discuss this with us. It's none other than Stephen Pulverant, founder of Rhyme and Reason, a creative and marketing agency. He's also currently the West Coast editor at large for Revolution and former managing editor for Hodinkee, among others. So, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, guys. Good to good to be here. Good to see your faces. And yeah, happy to talk watches, journalism, all my favorite things. So fantastic to see you too, man. And uh, a fun table turn here because our very, very first watch podcast was with you on Hodinkee Radio almost five years ago. So how the tables have turned. Man, yeah, for for real, how the, how the turntables have turned. Yeah, that was a fun one. We had, we had a good time with that one. It was. And I think it actually leads into the, the first question that we want to ask you, which is a question that I think comes up on a lot of people's minds when they are avid consumers of watch media, which, which is how do media companies make the decision about what it is that they're going to cover? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the funny thing is in watches, it works pretty similarly to how it works in, in other parts of media. <laughs> you know, maybe if we're talking like political journalism, that's a slightly different thing, has slightly different implications. But like if we're talking consumer journalism of any kind or even just kind of like everyday news, yeah, it's 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 a chain of command. You know, it's it's not dissimilar from something that people might recognize from like a show about a restaurant. You know, it's like there's almost like a brigade system in a in an editorial team it's worked that way for a long time. There's obviously companies that do it differently, but I have mostly worked in companies that have had some semblance of a like, quote unquote, like traditional structure. And what that what that basically means is you have an editor in chief at the top, and that person is ultimately like where the buck stops. And then you have below that person, a chain of decision makers, and then a chain of content producers. And everybody is just coming, you know, kind of top down and bottom up with ideas. So you have mandates from on top that's like, hey, these are the stories we want to tell. This is the perspective we want. This is kind of what we're doing. And then you have pitches from the bottom up of people saying like, hey, you know, either I got this thing in my inbox or I saw this thing or I had this idea. And it's a matter of finding where in the middle you can get people to agree and get buy-in. I'll say very, very few things end up on the internet, on TV, wherever, in a magazine because like one person made a decision, it's almost always groups of people making decisions and making decisions based on, you know, a number of different priorities, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. But that's, that's kind of the rough, the rough thing is it's like, it's human beings making ideas, like coming up with ideas, having chats, and then making pretty basic decisions like yay or nay. There's two things that you said that I, I'm curious to dig into a little bit there. The first is, and, and if I'm mischaracterizing this, please tell me, but, but it sounds to me like you're stating that several of the publications that you may have worked for, and this is, I suspect, true of most publications, have some sort of an editorial filter or vision for the kinds of stories that they want to tell, and that it's not unreasonable to assume that as 
whether an idea is coming from inside the editorial team or if it's coming from an external source, that it essentially gets run through that filter to determine if that's something that that meets the the bar, so to speak, for the for the brand. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, th- I think that's that's a that's a good way, and and it's. It's a question of like there there's there's various needs that meet, need to be met, right? Like there's the publication has has needs which are often financial, but then the audience has needs and it's a matter of making sure that you meet as many of those needs as possible. Well, this leads to I think the second question that I had listening to you talk there, which is around around sources. And what I mean by that is you're talking about being creative in a both a collaborative context but also on your own. And if we use a collective as an example, the reason that we initially ended up having the opportunity to be on Hodinky Radio was because at the time, this was in, in tandem with our launch uh, with C1 for Zenith, we were able to work with their PR team, which means that their PR team was representing, to in a sense, the story to you. And I'm curious, how does, well, sort of two questions in there. One, how does the source, so to speak, impact the potential interest in a story, right? So you, you had heard from the publicist at Zenith, Zenith about us, and that, I suspect, gave you a little bit of context on who we were, having not known us. And then two, and this is maybe a little bit of a leading question, but I'm curious, if you get a blind email, but the story is exciting, even if it's not coming from a publicist you've worked for, how do you evaluate something like that? Yeah, I mean, I've, there's, there's a couple great things in that question. You know, one is I was fortunate pretty early in my career to have an editor at Bloomberg who shared with me the, the witticism that publicists aren't sources, which was a valuable thing for me to learn at that stage of my career. The difference between a publicist and a source, which I think is is really, really important. And the funny thing is like sometimes when when the three of us chat, like sometimes we're chatting in a capacity where like you guys are are essentially being your own publicists. And other times we chat when you guys are are kind of being sources, like when we're chatting about other other things going on in the watch industry. So, you know, it's not really a person thing. It's a, a kind of role thing and a type of interaction thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm uh, everybody does it their own way. And and I'll say I, I don't really have a good handle on like, I'm not going to say I'm the norm on this or I'm not the norm on that. Like, this is just me. But I read every email that comes in my inbox. Have your eyes open and your ears open. Like if you're if you're a journalist, that's your job. And if you're not open to new things and new stories and new ideas and new people and new avenues of getting information, you're going to be pretty shit at your job. You know? And and if all you're doing is regurgitating the work from the 10 sources or 15 publicists or whatever or some combination thereof, you're not really doing anything interesting. Like the best the best stuff is the stuff that gets deleted from most people's inboxes in my experience. So I don't know. It's about keeping your eyes open. And I always thought the best part of my job as a journalist was that I got paid to be nosy. Like I got paid to have conversations that would otherwise be like kind of socially unacceptable. That's interesting. And I think, you know, maybe another attribute of of a good watch journalist is skepticism. I think one of the things you just mentioned, right, was this idea that a journalist or sorry, a publicist is not a source, but a publicist and a brand does provide you with something valuable, which is access. You know, they provide you with access to information, access to watches, access to 
a look behind the scenes or, or different experiences. And that does have value. So I wonder how relationships with brands and with publicists, and that could just be a relationship where they're providing access, or it could be a relationship where there's also an advertising relationship or even a retail relationship between the media outlet and the brand. I wonder how those relationships impact the decision a media outlet is going to make about what what they're going to cover and what they're not going to cover. You mentioned the word access, and that's that's crucial in watch journalism. You know, we uh, the the term that gets used within the industry is it's it's access journalism. It's journalism that depends on access. So, like people might be thinking, what does that mean? Well, let's let's take a brand for example. Let's take Patek Philippe. This is just a straw man, but you know, I think Patek can handle it. Um, so like if I have a shit relationship with Patek Philippe, but I want to report on them, like what am I gonna do? Am I gonna develop a covert relationship with an authorized dealer under a different name and purchase every watch to review and to write about secretly? Like that's not really practical in any sense. That's just like not possible. Unless anybody wants to subscribe to a like $10,000 a month sub stack, which hit me up, we can talk about that. But otherwise, that's just not possible. And even then, I don't even think it would be possible even with bottomless pockets. So like, I need if I'm going to report on them, if that's a thing I want to do, part of my job is is a, a balancing act. It's getting the best stories, the hardest hitting stories. And I don't mean that in an aggressive way. I just mean like, they have to have substance and they have to matter to people. But also while keeping Patek Philippe, at least at the baseline, happy enough with me that they like keep inviting me to things, that they keep lending product to me, that they keep giving me interview access to their CEO. And like companies are touchy about these things. And so it's, it's a balancing act. And you have to make determinations, both in terms of what you say and what you don't say, thinking the long game. So, All right. So I... I really want to dig into that because I suspect the people listening to this are probably thinking a, a very specific question in their head, right? Which is, sure. and we'll keep using your straw man. If how Patek Philippe feels about you is directly correlated to your ability to cover them and to have the access that you've described, where does criticism come in there? So, for example, let's say a 2023 novelty came out and you saw significant design or functional issues with that watch, or maybe you just didn't like it and you wanted to offer a critical review aesthetically about it, does that correlate to your ability to, to maintain access? If you came out and you said, these new Calatravas are just like, you know, they're missing the mark. There's a production issue that I don't like. I don't appreciate that they use CNC machines for guilloche or whatever. How does that correlate to the next time you see Mr. Stern? If you see Mr. Stern? Yeah, it depends. You know, it depends. I, I think if I were to come out and say, like, Mr. Stern has jumped the shark and needs to hand the company off to somebody else and blah, blah, blah. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he wants to sit down and have a conversation about it. Maybe he never wants to see me again. And who knows? And maybe he doesn't want me invited to dinners. And maybe he doesn't want me reviewing watches. Or maybe he's like, you know what? We got to make this guy happy. Every, every executive and every publicist and every marketing director and whatever responds differently in these things. I can say that I have been very, very lucky in my career 
I can count on one hand the number of times I've gotten legitimately angry phone calls from an executive or a publicist. And in almost all of the cases, I knew it when I did it, that it was going to happen. And I prepared for it. And people were reasonable and cooler heads prevailed. I've only had one or two times where we had an issue. I think I've told this story on Mike before, but I got a publicist fired once, which was not intentional. I wrote a story when I was at Bloomberg about a watch brand for Business Week, not a luxury watch brand. Yeah, I'll leave I'll leave their name out of this just in case. I, I don't want anybody since I said somebody got fired. I don't I, I don't need any lawyers calling me. But <laughs> yeah, it was a watch brand I wrote about for Business Week, and my editor put what honestly was a good headline on it, which was something along the lines of how to make five hundred million dollars selling cheap Chinese watches, was essentially the headline. Nice. And honestly, it was a good headline. He did a great job. He's a very talented headline writer. He works for the New York Times Magazine now. Brilliant editor. Yeah, Kurt. Shout out Kurt, who's definitely not listening to this, but (laughs) shout out to Kurt. Great editor, put that headline on it. And it turned out the publicist had kind of told the CEO that this was going to be like a profile of him. It turned out to be a business story about how the company had grown so quickly. It really was like not a watch story. It was like a process and business story. But those people were upset. Got some angry phone calls at my desk, got some phone calls. My editor got some phone calls. It was not good. Other than that, people have been pretty, pretty reasonable about it. Everybody's professionals. Everybody's trying to do their jobs. Sometimes you get iced out for a little while and then you get back, you find a way. That's part of the give and take of of the job. You know, if you're good at the job, you figure out ways to both say the things you need to say and get the access you need to get long term. And sometimes that does mean pulling punches. And, And to your point originally, like, do you not say something that you believe because you're worried that an executive is going to get upset with you. Of course, you know, like I'm not going to say that that's not something that happens. Of course that happens. But I had I had a teacher in graduate school, and this I've definitely talked about before publicly. I, I had a journalism teacher who taught an arts reviewing class. So we were reviewing films and museum exhibitions and we did a restaurant review just like it was it was a criticism and review course and one of the things he told us the first week was that if something's going to be bad and you're going to talk about how bad it is it needs to be bad in an important way and if it's not bad in an important way you're just punching down you're just trashing something and that doesn't have a lot of value to the reader there's schadenfreude but it's not it doesn't bring value it's candy it's not something of substance. And so for me, when making that decision, the question is, if I'm going to stick my neck out there and risk future access, it needs to be important. And when it is, I'll do it. And when it's not, there's no reason to just run my mouth and just cause problems later. You know, like, we'll use Patek again. Like, if the new Calatrava is like genuinely bad, and if like Patek is lying, which again, as far as I know, they are not, no, no shade on Patek, but if they or another watch brand were lying about how they were finishing things, or if the pricing was weird, or if there's like a weird currency thing going on, or if they're allocating pieces in a funny way, and I don't say that, like, okay, maybe that's, that's stuff people need to know. If I just like don't personally like the style of finishing on a new movement, like, okay, like I can say it, but I can say it in a nice way, and there's no, there's no reason to like 
not get to report on the next paddock release so that I can express that like I would have finished it in rhodium instead of it. Like that's just that's just stupid. It's honestly it's indulgent and it's like irresponsible uh, for the journalist. And so yeah, you just have to know it's like it's honestly it's like being a human being. Like you have to know when to run your mouth and when not to, which I'm obviously not always perfect at, but you know, you try, yeah, you try, well. to, <laughs> you try to be the best you can, right? I do understand, you know, putting myself into a watch company's shoes, why they would want to be protective of the brand that they're creating. And similarly, I think you make a very valid point, which comes across very regularly from, from readers and just from clients that we have in general, which is, you know, how can we never see a negative review? And yeah, you know, I think maybe they're trained on this from, from looking at other forms of arts review. Like I definitely read and am entertained by terrible review, you know, film reviews or bad book reviews, you know, like there is a certain art form to writing or certain arts to writing a terrible book review, or rather I should say a book review of a terrible book. <laughs> yeah, sure. But, you know, but the, the watch industry in general doesn't seem to have a lot of those negative reviews. And while I understand why a brand would be defensive, and I'm hearing your perspective on why a takedown doesn't necessarily serve an editorial purpose in the way that you're describing it, I'm curious if there's any other reasons or rationale why we don't see that. Again, to me, it goes back to this idea of like, if something's bad, it's got to be bad in an important way. Otherwise, just ignore it. Like, I will say, if, if you want to learn about like me personally, what I think about watches broadly, go look at what I've written and what I've not written. Sometimes the stuff I didn't write is because a colleague wrote about it. So like, go double check that. But like, there's a lot of stuff I just haven't talked about. That says a lot. And there's no reason for me to come out and trash it. People aren't stupid. Specifically in the watch world, I'll say I'm very blessed. You know, the audience I, I get to write for is really smart and really engaged and really knowledgeable. Smart and knowledgeable are different things, but in this case, they're both. I'm very fortunate at Revolution that we have like a really engaged, smart, savvy audience that like knows what's up which is cool. And it's been that way everywhere I've worked. And even when I was reporting on things that weren't watches, you know, the tech audience I was reporting for at Bloomberg, like those people were smart, in most cases, smarter than me. And so like I, that was a lot of responsibility and it was great. But what that also means is I don't need to come out and be like, oh, this thing's terrible. Like, of, of course it is. You know, everybody gets it. Nobody's, nobody's stupid. And when we review 50 watches coming out of Watches and Wonders or at the time SIHH or Basel World or whatever, when there's like deep dives on 50 watches and there's a huge watch from an important brand and it's crickets, that tells you what you need to know. It's, it's, and it's just a matter of a combination of things. It's the politics, obviously, you know, like I said, we got to be smart. But it's also just like, is that that interesting to read? Like everybody loves it because it's a bloodbath. Everybody talks about it on social for five minutes, but like, does that stick with you? Like, I'm much prouder of the, like, real deep dive historical stuff, the interviews with interesting people, the behind the scenes looks at stuff like, you know, back in 2013, I guess it would have been, like, through, again, sourcing and networking and talking to publicists and not publicists and whatever. Like, when I was at Hodinkee, we were able to get the first hands-on photos in the world of the Swatch System 51. It was the watch off Hayek's wrist. I had it for five minutes in a conference room. I had somebody who personally asked him for it. I got it. We got pictures. I'm much more proud of that 
than I am about like talking shit about some watch that nobody cares about now. You know, it's, it's just to me, the stakes aren't there. And yeah, like if that's what you want, if you want to like see negative stuff about watches, go search YouTube. There's plenty of it on there. Like you can find it and you can enjoy it. I just don't think as like a professional reporter, it just wasn't what interested me. And maybe that's my own quirks too, but like, I don't know. That's just not what I want to do. And I think if you look at the history of lifestyle media, let's say, like if you look at Vogue, if you look at GQ, if you look at Arc Digest, if you look at Vanity Fair, like they're not generally writing about clothes and homes and movies that they hate. They're writing about the stuff they like and they're celebrating it and they're raising the profile of the good stuff. And like, I don't know. To me, that's just like a much more fruitful project. And it's also a much nicer way to spend my day. If I wanted to be a, the kind of reporter who was like, you know, trying to pick the bones clean every day, like I would have gone on like a campaign trail or something. And there's a reason I didn't do that. That is not the kind of reporter I ever wanted to be. I think, you know, the, the analogy to those other media is a really good one. But you know, I think the fact is like watch media is really really distinct in the way the the business model for watch media is is evolving and is different from those other traditional sure. media outlets and in particular what i'm talking about here is now the watch media in general and there are exceptions to this and there's also degrees to this but in general what the watch media has a closer relationship with the brands it covers than it ever has before they may retail some of the brands they cover they may not retail some of the brands they cover or don't cover they may have projects or collaborations things like like that and so i guess the 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 question here is and we should talk about what it would actually look like to have an independent watch media we can talk about that probably in in a little bit but i think the question here is really like knowing that watch media has a closer relationship with brands than they ever have before how does that impact what's covered yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. There's no two ways about it. It's tricky and it's a new thing for media. I mean, obviously like we don't need to get into like the history of how like newspapers were funded over the 19th and 20th centuries and how magazines evolved out of that. Like we don't need to get into all of that, but like the business model is different. And I think going forward it's the only sustainable business model for something like this kind of enthusiast media. I think that, you know, we've seen the shift in advertising dollars. You know, when I started in the industry full time in like 2011, 2012, it was nobody wanted to spend online. And then five, five, six years ago, nobody wanted to spend in print. And then it was all social, then it was all web, then it was all influence. It's just like the money moves around. And the problem is, unless you want to spend your whole business, unless you want to dedicate your whole business to chasing incremental marketing dollars, like there's just no there's no way to fund a professional operation that way. You know, I I don't know how many people pay attention to the like behind the scenes stuff, but covering a trade show is tough. Uh, I was talking to some folks about it last night about what Watches and Wonders is going to look like this year. And like some of the big publications are taking 10 to 15 people. And like I'll I'll just peel the curtain back here like a coach airline ticket, like an economy basic airline ticket from LA or New York to Geneva that week is two to $4,000. 
Business class ticket, if you're very lucky, is ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Hotels are a thousand dollars a night up for like a middle of the road hotel. You can maybe get something like a little a little bargain base mini for like four or five hundred Swiss francs, but like uh, probably don't want to walk around too much. So like taking 10, 15 people to the show is expensive. And if you're trying to do that on advertising dollars and figure that's one event for the whole year and you're paying salaries and benefits and travel costs and production costs and buying cameras and like it's expensive. And so you got to you got to find a way to do it. And so I actually don't think that selling watches is a bad thing for watch media. It's a tricky thing, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think if we can find ways for to make it easier and better for customers and readers, then it's a good thing. Like if you can read about a product, be like, oh, that sounds cool. And I can buy it right here and get good customer service and a good experience and buy from somebody I trust and know that the next time I want to know about a watch, there will be a deep dive review of it because I bought my watch from them instead of from the AD down the street with a 10% discount. Like, that's that's a good thing and you can participate in the community in that way but it does put the onus on the publication to really like prove that they're delivering value you got to earn people's trust and you got to earn it every day and it never gets easier and sometimes you screw up and you make a mistake and you got to earn it back and sometimes you do something awesome and kind of buys you some leeway for later but i don't know i've always been a believer that like especially because the readers are smart I'm not going to pull one over on them. So like, why even try? You know, like I, A, I don't want to do that. It doesn't interest me. And B, I'm not going to succeed at it. So like knowing, knowing the kind of like limits of the system I'm working in, I would rather just be honest with everybody and say like, hey, yeah, my employer does sell this watch. Or like, hey, this new watch arrived in, you know, the retail arm of my company and Somebody showed it to me and like, I thought it was cool and I wanted to write about it. Or like, hey, we got five of these. If you want one, they're probably going to go pretty quickly. I think it's pretty cool. And it's just a matter of making sure that that feels real and authentic and is real and authentic. Because if it's not, somebody's going to notice and then you're going to get called out and then it's a problem. And so just like, it sounds stupid, but like honest, honesty is the best policy here. Just like, don't, it's again, it sounds so stupid saying it like this, like as I'm thinking about it, but it's like, don't lie to people and super duper don't lie to people who support you in your business. You know, like that's real dumb. It doesn't matter what business you're in or what you're doing. Like lying to your customers and supporters is stupid. So like if you wouldn't do it in one business, don't do it in this business. It's, it's really like that straightforward. You, you, you touched on two things, which I think sometimes get lost in the mix. You know, in an earlier part of my career, I worked in television for about eight or nine years and one of the things that always came up in conversation there was about how client clients about how viewers had essentially been negatively trained with their expectations. And what I mean by that is up until, you know, streaming services, cable, et cetera, whatever television was perceived as free. Uh, and this idea uh, of like, yeah. as long as I, right, as long as I get the TV and I put the bunny ears on top of the TV, the content just comes and advertising as it is broadly written essentially pays for all of it, which as you just described is, is not always true. And supplementary, supplementary revenue is required to make this sort of thing happen, which brings up a really interesting question about where responsibility may lie. And I, I'd love your, your point of view on this in terms of paying for what you're consuming. Right now, you know, when we, in the, in, in the, the media landscape that we live in right now, 
most of what people want to consume is available legally or otherwise to be consumed for free or percepts or, or to be perceived as free, right? If I go to YouTube, that's being monetized with advertising for sure. But like for, from my perspective, like I'm not really paying for it. Right. And then when we talk about what you just said, where it could cost up, it could cost almost six figures to send a full proper team, if you know, to watches and wonders, uh, that's a ton of cash. If we were to even think about that as being fully reader subsidized, the cost per month per reader for most magazines would be, yeah, it's laughable. Exactly. You're talking thousands upon thousands of dollars. So this brings up a really interesting rhetorical question. I'm just curious how you've turned this over in your head, which is how, like, what would be if you were to be able to design a model yourself, what would be the most equitable way to bring revenue in to a media outlet? If you if you had no baggage from anything, you were starting from complete scratch, thinking about the different kinds of revenue sources available to you, what do you think would provide the most resource to be able to produce content and the most diversity of revenue so that you've sort of covered your bases in terms of not being super reliant on you know, advertising or individuals, et cetera, and, and one would argue have the most freedom in that sense? Or is that just not possible? Yeah, I mean, I think like, not to take the easy way out here, but I think like the the real answer is it's not it's not possible. Like I think the the landscape is shifting, always has been shifting, continues to shift. So I think like you end up you end up chasing, and when you're chasing, it's you're you're losing. You know, it's like catching a falling knife. You know, like that's not it's not the thing to do. So I think I think the important things are you use the word responsibility, and I think that's that's really key, and it's something that I always talked about at Hodinkee anytime I was in charge of leading a team. It's something that was instilled in me at, at Bloomberg and other places. It's, it's, it's a real key and it's something I bring, whether I'm doing journalism work or whether I'm doing marketing work for clients or you know any, anything that's like consumer facing. To me, the metric of success was not if somebody liked something or not. You can't make everybody like everything all the time. That's just not possible. And despite my like deep, deep need and desire to be liked, it has been coming, coming to terms with that was not always easy. But yeah, it's, it's just not. You're just not going to please everybody all the time. What you can strive for is to bring value over time and have people feel like it was worthwhile. And so to me, the worst case scenario was never somebody down in the comments going like, Steven doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Steven's an idiot. I hate, the, you know, the number of times I've gotten on podcast comments, people being like, I hate this guy's voice. I hate the way he speaks. This guy should go to go to college. Like, you know, like, I, like of course, sure, fine. I, I don't care, honestly. Like, really, truly don't care. The thing that, that occasionally would, would get said and, like, kind of kills me a little bit is the, like, God, this was a waste of my time. Like, that to me is the worst thing somebody can say is, like, this was, I wish I could have my like 20 minutes back. I always str strive to bring value and to bring something, even if it's a feeling of frustration to the reader or to the listener or the viewer or whatever. Because again, I'm not going to make everybody happy all the time, but I have a responsibility that these people are giving me their time and sometimes giving me their money and giving me their attention. And like, we all know that there is infinite content consumed these days. And if somebody is going to say like, hey, a couple times a week, I'm going to listen to a podcast you do, or I'm going to put 
this on in the car while I'm driving my kids to school, or I'm going to take my 20 minutes at lunch to read through this article while I'm at my desk, like shoving my sweet green salad in my mouth, you know, like that's, that's valuable. And that's like, really, that's a lot. We, we don't think about it because we do this all day, every day online all the time, but it's like, that's a lot to ask of somebody. And it's tremendously kind and generous of somebody to give that back to you. And I always try to keep that front of mind. Like, and it, it sounds like really like woo woo and like whatever, but like, I, I really do think about that when I'm writing something is like, is this going to bring value to people? Like, is this, is this worthwhile? Is this something that I feel good about asking somebody to take 15 minutes out of their day to read? And like, I mean that in a really literal sense. Like if I was sitting across the table from somebody, would I like slide a piece of paper across and be like, this is what you need to do with your next 15 minutes of your life that you will never get back. Read about a watch from me, you know? And so I think that is a tremendous responsibility. And and a lot of the commerce questions boil right back down to that basic question, which is like, okay, we're selling stuff, we're taking money from here, we're taking money from there. It's all like kind of above board, but like most readers and consumers don't really understand it. Like we're not lying about anything, but like most people just don't get it. However, at the end of the day, when somebody reads this review or this news story or listens to this pod or whatever, are they going to feel like it was additive to their life? Or are they going to be like, God, I wish I could get that 45 minutes back. And as long as the answer isn't the second one, I think I fulfilled my responsibility. Like I, I can only ask so much of myself. And I think to me, that, that to me is the most fundamental question. There's questions layered on top of that, but that, that to me is, is the real question. And if I failed at that, none of the other shit matters. If I succeed at that, then we're, we're cooking with gas and we can have a, a bigger conversation. So I think th- this, is a, it's a good, this is a good example of an incentive a journalist and media have to, to, to get coverage right, right? We've, we've talked a lot today about like, what are all, you know, what are the incentives not to do the right thing, right? Whether it's, oh, there's an incentive around access. There's an incentive around maybe a retail relationship or an advertising relationship with a brand. There's all these incentives right, to maybe cover something or not be critical. But what you mentioned earlier are actually examples of incentives that journalists and media outlets have to do the right thing in terms of editorial independence, right? Absolutely. I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, we spent a lot of time focusing on some of the challenges. What, What are the other incentives that people should maybe consider to get things right and to do the right things and to be above board? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, as as a journalist in that part of my my life, which I did full time for about a decade, and now I'm, I'm doing part time with my other work, like your your currency in that world as a writer is trust. That's your currency. That's the value you bring. You know, like if you're, you know, if, if you're if you're a professional athlete, like you're putting points on the board. That's that's the thing you bring. You you bring trust is what you bring to the table as a journalist. If people don't trust you, you're worthless. You're like genuinely worthless. So, as and that goes for individual journalists and for publications. If nobody trusts your publication, you're screwed. You know, and like that. So the the positive incentive is when you're making decisions, is there is a tangible positive benefit to both you as the person whose name is on the story and to the publication whose name is at the top of the page. It is in your best interest to have people trust you. It's just like very basic. If you have trust, you have readership, that readership or listenership tells other people, 
Those people join, it grows, it's word of mouth. That's how things actually grow sustainably over time. It's also how people come to you with the right stories because people want to go to trustworthy people. And people want to go, again, Asher, to your point about being, you know, having quotes mischaracterized. It's like nobody, nobody wants that. So like you don't want that as a as a source, but you also don't want that as collective. Like you're not gonna take a really cool project you're working on to somebody like that. You're gonna take it to the person where you're like, oh, I know this is going to be handled sensitively and correctly and appropriately, whether or not there's money in it for whoever. And like, that's how you get good stories. And so the positive incentives are you can't do your job without trust and you can't get trust without doing your job well. And so it's, it's, it's a hamster wheel. Like you get on, you do your job well, and you keep doing your job well, because if you don't, you've basically just like jammed a stick in the hamster wheel and it's not going to go well. And so not not to go back to like negative incentives because there is that thing looming over your shoulder where you're like I got to I got to keep this up, you know? It is it is a 24-hour news cycle kind of world we live in where like you got to keep it keep it coming. You're only as good as the last thing you did. But the positive incentives are there and like if you do a good job, you get to keep doing a good job and you get to keep like the more work is the reward for good work and more stories are the rewards for good stories. And within a publication, you know, as as in my capacity as an editor, it's like you see a young reporter do well at something basic and then you give them something more complicated and then they do well at that and you give them something even more. And like before you know it, I've had really good experiences where people who came in as non-professional writers end up doing like really amazing pieces of journalism. And it's really fulfilling and exciting to watch that and to see the positive reaction in the community, the positive reaction in the industry, the positive reaction from that person. It's really rewarding. I, I like, I love journalists. Like they're like my favorite people are, are journalists. And so getting to work in, you know, various kinds of newsrooms and media companies over the years, it's exciting to see those positive incentives come not just for myself, but for the people I get to work with. And to get to be a part of that, it's it's tremendously rewarding. And of the things I miss from being a full-time journalist, that's that's the stuff. I mean, it's the like hanging out in the newsroom, figuring out stories, arguing about things, seeing one of your colleagues crush it. Like that, that's immensely rewarding and not to be underestimated. I think that's probably the perfect place for us to leave this on on a high note. <laughs> Steven, thank you so much for being so open and transparent and sharing this with folks and Helping, helping answer, I think, a lot of the questions that have floated out there in the ether. So we appreciate you. Man, that, that was great having Stephen on. And you're right. I totally forgot that the first podcast episode we ever appeared on was Hodinky Radio with, with Stephen. So kind of fitting that he, he joined us for our first guest interview on, on, on this show. Yeah. You know, I... I was struck in listening to it how much I'm personally impacted by the growing cynicism that we see in the market towards watch media. You know, a lot of the conversation that we had was tied to negative incentives and people's perception of a business's right to make money, how they make money, and how that's transparent. And in my mind, I think I, I need to split out the perfectly valid concern because we all want to trust what we're reading, right? I mean, ultimately, that's, in my mind, like that's really what it boils down to with the second component, which was just checking my own feelings, thinking about 
you know, how we manage our brand as a business, how we would advise, how we have traditionally advised others in our former career to manage their brand and how protective people are over what they've built and trying to find that balance between feeling like I as a consumer can trust what I'm reading and having empathy for a brand that wants to defend their integrity and how those two things should meet. It's, it's an interesting, and I, I mean, I don't know that there's a solution to that, but it's a really interesting exercise to go through mentally when you think through this kind of thing. Yeah, I think, you know, the solution I think a lot of people have in, in mind is that, you know, by and large, watch media should just adopt a different business model and that there should be like a, a truly independent watch media. And so one of the things that stood out about that conversation to me was this notion that, you know, we as in like the watch enthusiast community kind of want and expect like a quote, independent watch media. But fundamentally, like we're actually not really willing to pay for it, no. and so we we end up with with the business models we have today in the industry. Well, nobody is able to pay for it, right? I mean, I, I remember once doing a little bit of math and looking at the cost of a subscription to the New York Times against the total revenue of the New York Times. And I mean, I, I fully recognize that this is not like a scientific business analysis, but if we were to just say, if all the revenue required to make the New York Times a profitable endeavor came from subscribers, the cost per subscriber was comically high, like in the thousands. And, and that's clearly unsustainable. I mean, maybe outside of a medical journal here or there, really nobody pays that kind of money for content. And when Stephen put the nail on the head, I mean, you and I, when we go to Watches and Wonders, I mean, it costs our business five figures for us to go and, and we're we're staying in the, in the in the hotels in the in the yeah. not so great parts of town. You yeah, know? and there's two of us exactly, and we're not going with a video crew, etc. So I, I I agree with you that like the expectation of a independent media that is not subsidized by anybody is a pipe dream. The broader question, though, and I think this is also a really interesting one as well, is like where does somebody have a right to make a living, and who has the right to make that judgment? You know, and, and with media in particular, one thing that we see is someone saying, like, I don't really feel comfortable, or people saying, like, I don't feel comfortable with somebody selling watches, but I'm not willing to pay for the cost. And I don't feel good about advertising dollars being involved because that may impact that media. So then the question then becomes, well, well then how do those businesses ultimately exist? And I think the answer to that is is plain. They can't. And that goes back to the other takeaway that I got from from our conversation, which is, it doesn't sound like, from what he was describing, that selling a watch necessarily prevents a rational conversation about that watch. But the, the, the lack of negative coverage does not necessarily imply positive belief. So in other words, if I'm a, a company that, that creates media and sells watches, it's, I'm disincentivized from going on to talk about a watch not meeting my personal taste. But the fact that I'm not actively talking about it probably tells you what I think. And I thought that was a really interesting insight that I had never really thought about and definitely gave me some, you know, some perspective there. Because the other side of it too is when I do read something that's like out for blood, I don't feel good after, you know? And that's, that, that's a reasonable thing to, to, to bear in mind when writing about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other, the other point I, I took away, which is like, there actually is an, a tangible and a real incentive to having, having good 
good watch journalism and good coverage, which is there's an incentive for the journalists themselves because they think of their job as a career. It's not just about like which publication I'm writing for today and which watches they're asking me to cover. They have to think, you know, where is their career going to be in one year, two years, five years, 10 years? And they need credibility. They need an audience. uh, They need to cultivate sources. And so I do think the greatest actual, you know, really the greatest incentive of all in terms of maintaining sort of fair and balanced coverage is with the journalists themselves, because Mm -hmm. they have an incentive to think about their career and how what they write or whatever they create kind of impacts their career and their audience over the long term. Yeah. I mean, as you were saying that too, I was also just thinking, you know, how you and I build uh, marketing plans and media plans for when we launch a brand or when we launch a watch. And we definitely think about the folks that we've enjoyed working with from a media standpoint. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that when a, an article goes live or content goes live, that, it's, that it accurately represents what it is that we've made. I mean, you and I have had reviews written about products that were not entirely favorable, and that's okay. And we've certainly had comments about products that are not entirely favorable, and that's okay too. But when we think about the overall marketing, we still do consider, well, if we go to outlet X, Y, or Z and reach out to writer you know, A, B, or C, the reason why we're doing that is because those people did a really good job of offering a thoughtful articulation of what we were trying to accomplish with a project and helping us convey that to folks. I suppose you could make an argument if you wanted to be super cynical that that means that that content has less value because we, as the marketers, made a, you know, made a choice to reach out to someone. But like at the same time, if you're cynical about that, then, then you're kind of going to be cynical about literally everything in life because that's exactly how brands are built and messages are communicated. So there's a lot more to get into here about the psychology of why people want to see a takedown or why negativity somehow proves authenticity as a theory. And, you know, my theater degree does not enable me to, to comment on that very effectively. But it is something that, that I do come back around to. And I do think Stephen's point about responsibility and like trying to make the content that he made just be worth somebody's time was an interesting metric. Yeah. Well, shall we leave it there? Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks for listening to Open Work, a podcast from Collective Horology. You can find us online at collectivehorology.com. And to get in touch with suggestions, feedback, or questions, email us at podcast at collectivehorology.com. Mm-hmm.